my first real interaction with Welsh mythology and folklore happened when I was still at school, and that's something that I'm quite privileged to have. A history where I could look back at my school days and remember a time when my teachers read to me the stories, myths, and legends of the land upon which we lived in. Not everyone in Wales is privileged to have grown up with these myths and legends around them. I grew up in Aberfraw and we were taught that Branwen Verchir got married in Aberfraw to Matholwch, the Irish king. My mum and dad would take me down to Hadlech, which is where Bendigaidvran's castle was said to be. And I spent all of my youth running around in castle ruins and learning about all these fantastical stories from people such as my teachers at school. Welcome, Kroiso, to the Welsh Witch Podcast. My name is Mara Starling. I'm a Welsh folk witch, originally from Ynys Morn, the Isle of Anglesey, and in this podcast we explore the magical nature of the culture of Wales. Now today I have a very special guest on the podcast to speak with us all about Welsh folklore, Welsh mythology, and just folklore and mythology in general. Let me welcome onto the show Shan Esther Powell. Now, Shan Esther Powell is a folklore and mythology enthusiast. She is a museum professional from Cornwall and a graduate of Celtic studies. Shan shares her love for Celtic folklore and mythology via her podcast, the Celtic Myths and Legends podcast, as well as via her TikTok, which you might know her from, Celtic Shan. Her passion and love for all things Celtic in nature, as well as her unique unique and whimsical personality is deeply infectious and I am so lucky that she came on to the Welsh Witch podcast to chat with us today. We chat about the beauty and magic of folklore and mythology and the need to enchant our lives with these fantastical tales. We also talk about the ways in which pagans, witches and academics, those who approach these myths and legends from a more scholarly perspective, sometimes clash heads. I am merely a pagan, someone who does this as a hobby, who does this as my faith, as my lifestyle. Whereas Shan has a degree in Celtic studies, so she lives that passion, but she also has that scholarly approach. So we talk a little bit about how academics might perceive these stories quite differently to pagans and witches today, and how sometimes we might bump heads, and how we might need each other sometimes as well. We also talk about the importance of connecting to your local landscape, connecting to the land as a whole, and we also touch upon a little bit of gatekeeping. Is gatekeeping necessary within certain circles to keep out harmful ideologies? Let's see. So without further ado, this episode is quite lengthy because I, I just could not cut a single minute of it. Shan and I talk about some very important things, and I hope that you absolutely love it. So welcome to the Welsh Witch Podcast, and allow me to introduce you to Shan Esther Powell, aka Celtic Shan. <laughs> Hello, Sean, and welcome to the Welsh Witch Podcast. How are you doing tonight? Hello, I'm great, thank you. I've been working all day, but I've been very excited about tonight, so thank you for having me. Gosh, I'm so excited that you even agreed to come on. I remember, I think when I first started TikTok, I was introduced to you because people kept tagging you in my comments. And I was like, who is this person that they keep tagging? I need to have a look. And it was just this amazing explosion of, I don't know, folkloric goodness on my feed. And, and then you, you duetted one of my videos and shared it with your audience. And that was, I had a freak out. I had a little dance with a broom on camera. And I was just so thankful. <laughs> And ever since then, I just, I've been so thankful that I've come across your work and come across you as a person as well, because you are a delight. <laughs> oh, thank you. And uh, honestly, it's the same for me. I mean, when you first popped up on my For You page on TikTok, I was just like so chuffed. I was like, oh my God, look at this awesome person, like doing all of this, like awesome stuff that I love. You know, it's not 
your listeners might be shocked to find out it's not every day you come across people talking about Welsh mythology and folklore and all that sort of goodness <laughs> so I was also equally delighted <laughs> so you you're not a witch you're not a pagan I don't think if I'm right in saying that not yet not yet <laughs> <laughs> I would say not yet because it's not something that I'm opposed to but in good conscience it's not I couldn't ever say I am pagan because I've not ever really looked into anything properly I just like trees <laughs> that's about it for now oh that's the first step <laughs> oh, slippery gosh. slope and you but even though you don't seem to practice paganism or witchcraft yourself you you attract that kind of audience because I've noticed a lot of your audience are the same as kind of my audience and a lot of the people who follow me and message me and such they always recommend that I follow you and I think a lot of people just assume that you are a witch because you're so into folklore and magic and so I guess you're you're like an honorary witch with us now Thank you. And I, yes, I have to really credit Witch Talk or the sections of, of um, TikTok that, you know, are where witches are. <laughs> and there's been lots of different hashtags thrown around, but I really have to credit um, that because that's initially, well, that's where a huge chunk of my audience first came from and which kind of propelled me into the For You page of lots of other people. So I have been a little bit critical of some things, but overall all of the witches and and pagans and what have you that I've come across that you know actively um watch my content and interact with me and have become friends with me are bloody lovely people and I'm really really grateful to have met them well before we get started and talking about what it is that we're going to be talking about today I just wanted to ask you for those who might not have heard of you who might not have seen your content can you introduce yourself to us tell us a bit about yourself and then specifically tell us a little bit about where your interest and experience in uh, your connection to say Welsh or even just Celtic myth and legend lies like what is your experience and area in that interest well I don't know who I am who am I it's a question I ask myself all the time (laughs) but um, I work in museum but I'm very very much um, in love with folklore and mythology and I started a little podcast called Celtic Myths and Legends podcast um, in December 2017 so I guess that's where my love or my kind of promoting and making content around folklore began um and that's where I was able to build a little bit of an audience um and I'm very loud on Twitter about Cornwall and folklore and that sort of stuff and then of course I made a TikTok so um I guess that's why people listen to me (laughs) I'm getting to the point now where I'm trying to decide what to call myself because I you know I do get asked to do talks and do various um things on Cornish history and folklore mythology so um yeah it's very nice but I don't know what I am but what I do know is that I'm half Cornish half Welsh and I say I'm Cornish and Welsh and I'm very very tied to both Cornish and Welsh identity really obviously it's fractured in a way because um although I've lived in Wales and I've always connected to Wales I never I didn't wasn't born in Wales I didn't learn the Welsh language um so my identity has always been a little bit fractured but suffice to say I always had a really strong connection to Wales stronger than my connection to Cornwall actually I was born in Cornwall I grew up in Cornwall but for a long time I didn't know a lot about Cornish history or Cornish mythology or folklore and I was really bored before I could drive I was isolated you know a lot of teenagers here are isolated they're depressed Um, and I felt the same I couldn't wait to leave and I went straight to Cardiff Uni living in Cardiff and then lived with my nan in Merthyr for a bit and you know would move back to Wales in a heartbeat but of course I did miss Cornwall then and as soon as I went back and I earnestly threw myself into kind of learning about Cornish history and folklore mythology. I now, you know, I'm very, very connected to that part of myself. But I always find it interesting that although I was born in Cornwall and I am Cornish and I grew up in Cornwall, initially, I always felt more connected to my Welsh identity. And I don't know why that is, because to hear me now, people would just see me as a, a, an English <laughs> girl. Um, with no connection to Wales but but there you go 
<laughs> I've always loved how um, how passionate you you share about, say, uh, Cornwall, not just the Cornish folklore and mythology, but also the landscape, the way that you showcase the land that you grew up on. I mean, for my personal like stream of witchcraft, it's all about connecting to the land itself and just seeing you out in the land, connecting with the landscape. And you seem to go on a lot of walks and I'm very jealous of those like beautiful landscapes that you walk across. And it makes me very homesick because I've moved to England now and I don't live in an area that's rural anymore seeing your videos always makes me so uh this so uh, homesick and um i i've always wanted to talk to you about say like the connection between cornwall and wales and i think i'll have to get you back on at some point in the future to talk about the the way that we are the same but also different uh, within yeah. the kind of cornish and welsh cultures because we i always kind of refer to ourselves as we are very close cousins cornwall and wales like we're so similar we have such a similar culture and identity and our languages are both brythonic celtic languages so it's kind of we have such a connection and yet there's also a lot of differences which are really interesting so that's something i'll definitely have to invite you on if you would come on again to talk about <laughs> i would absolutely bloody love to talk about that so so i won't launch into it now but um initially when I chose to do my master's in Celtic studies I had to talk on the phone to my prospective um, lecturer and tell them why and my answer was well I'm Welsh and Cornish and I growing up I sort of traced all these similarities between Wales and Cornwall and I want to know if there actually is or if I'm just seeing it or if there actually is all these similarities and she was like come on great brilliant come on board and then when it got um, time to write my dissertation and I put forward, well, tracing similarities between Wales and Cornwall. She was like, no, you can't do that because that's PhD level. You, you, there's too much to talk about. You won't be able to fit it in a 10,000 word <laughs> thesis. So maybe maybe this will be my chance to remedy that, Mara. Maybe I can, <laughs> I'll come up with something. But yes, I'd love to talk about that. It's one of my favourite things to talk about. Absolutely love that. And I think um, to give you, I don't know if this is something that you're aware of, if you're not really uh, into the more kind of modern witchcraft stream of things. But it's interesting to me that when we talk about, say, Celtic myth and legend, there seems to be... Mm, it, it's difficult as it is to find things about Wales. Going and finding things about Cornwall can be even harder sometimes. And yet when it comes to witchcraft, it's almost the opposite. It's like, I'm looking at the shelves behind me in the camera screen right now. And I'm like, do you know how many books I have there that are about Cornish witchcraft and magic? Yeah. And I think that might be because of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic down there and the amount of like workers that you have that um, operate in a very kind of folkloric witchcraft style that we call it, where they're inspired by the folklore of Cornwall um, but yeah it was very inspirational to me when I first started kind of exploring witchcraft I, I found a lot of um, authors that came from Cornwall and who were so inspired by their folklore and by their land and I was there going there must be this for Wales as well so it, it, yeah. it would be very very interesting but today specifically I wanted to talk to you about uh, Welsh myth and legend and specifically the Mabinocchi and Welsh mythology, Welsh kind of medieval literature and how these things kind of play a role in your life and also just in our lives in general, how important they are to us. So can you let us in on your interests in myths and legends of the Celtic nations and when that started, what initiated your interest? Because I know you talk about the Mabinocchi sometimes on your TikTok and in your posts and such. So so where did that interest come from and how did that start? So for me, I mean, my name's Sean Powell, so I have a very Welsh name anyway. So my kind of love and connection to Wales, like I said earlier, started very early. Um, and I was always doomed. I, I said this on a podcast the other day I was on. I, I was doomed to be a nerd. I was doomed to be a nerd. My dad's really into fantasy. My dad's Welsh and he's really into fantasy and science fiction. So I grew up devouring, you know, Lord of the Rings and fantasy and what have you, uh, without knowing about the Mabinogi yet. Um, so I was always in that, that mindset to love um, enchantment and kind of like fantasy and magic in that sense, in that sort of folkloric sense. Um, and I think for me, I can't pinpoint exactly when I started looking into it, but I think I looked into sort of Welsh history and mythology in earnest before all the Cornish stuff and came across the Mabinogi. And then to find out that the oldest piece of prose literature in Britain is Welsh. And not only that, but it's basically the cornerstone to 
a lot of Western fantasy as we know it. So Tolkien was very inspired by a lot of Scandinavian epics, but also the Mabinogion. Um, and then you look <laughs> the further you go, the more you realize that um, kind of British literature and, and European literature, a lot of it is very influenced in turn by the Mabinogi, Arthurian legends, all of it. Um, and when it gets down to all of that's really cool, all of the academic and the, the significance of it, all of that's just really cool. But when you get down to actually reading it, oh my God, it's just amazing. It's like Monty Python on acid and Monty Python is already Monty Python on acid. It's just the most incredible thing, stories filled with betrayal and magic and transformation and love and adventure and it's just the most brilliant thing and I can't believe not everyone's obsessed with it um but you know you look at pop culture today you look at fantasy pop culture today you look at the witcher you look at Elden Ring you look at all of these big fantasy franchises the amount of Welsh language that's in it the amount of influence from the Mabinogi so the Welsh language and Welsh mythology and a lot of this derived from the Mabinogi is really just a basis for a lot of modern fantasy and as a nerd doomed to love that stuff to kind of have those two pieces connect was like so that was my initial sort of love for it <laughs> going off of what you just said about the importance of these stories not just you know to our culture and to our heritage but also to just like modern fantasy in general do you have a particular story that you connect to the most or one that you just love to read or to talk about the most or any characters because I know that within the kind of pagan community we tend to really fixate on certain characters and such but I'm just wondering from your perspective are there any that really just sing to your heart and that you can recite easily off the top of your head because you're just really deeply into it and why that might be so obviously as I said initially my interest was very much like nerdy in that regard but actually um in a kind of academic sense the Mabinogi is incredibly significant at looking at Welsh culture and um society and the way that society was sort of formed like gender roles and all sorts of interesting things and actually you can read a big deep strain of morality through the Mabinogi. So, you know, that this, um, these stories were captured in writing sort of 12th, 13th, 14th century, but they're taken from, you know, likely taken from performances and oral storytelling that's much older. So although we kind of think of it in terms of Arthurian legend and medieval stuff, those stories are actually portraying a Wales much, much older than medieval Wales. So it's really, really important for that in that sense. So for me, what I love is that you can really have these kind of ethical discussions and analysis of it. So you, you can look at um, Lodewev and you can look at um, women being forced into marriage and that kind of thing. You can look at Rhiannon and, you know, see again, women being you know, strong, powerful women that can have their agency taken away from them quite quickly. Um, I don't know what you can see when you look at um, Bendigafran or whatever, but he's a giant, so he's cool. Uh, and you're looking at characters like Ethnician, um, and he's like this archetypal jester, joker, trickster character, except he's not because he's actually quite scary, um, but then he self-sacrifices. So you've got all of these characters that kind of set the, they, they kind of created the template for a lot of these kind of characters, but also they're so much bigger and faster than that. So I love Ethnician because he's a horrible, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a little shit. He's a really nasty piece of work. Um, and he's violent and he's entitled and he's horrible, but he also kind of sacrifices himself ultimately in the end to protect his family and his people. So he's a really interesting, strange one. Um, I love Bloody Earth. I, I, I love her. Flower Maiden, come on, Flower Face, love her to bits. Um, but I'm really very fond of all of the women of the Mabinogi, you know, 
and they're the most interesting characters I'm not even saying that as like some sort of you know crazy feminist with an agenda I mean I am a crazy feminist whatever but it's the women that are the most interesting to me so Ariane Prod um, I know that she's big in a lot of um, kind of witch communities but for me I like her because she sort of just has this kind of innate um <laughs> I don't know not contempt but she's just she will not bow down she's just she's having none of it people keep trying to overstep her boundaries and she keeps putting them up anyway and being like no <laughs> not having it but I it's I can't let me look at listen to me I can't pick a favorite I love them all to bits but for me it's the women that I'm most interested in and Ethnician because he's just oh he's a he's a sort isn't he <laughs> I definitely think that what's very special about the Mabinoki specifically is how real the stories just are and how relatable they are to our day-to-day lives. Because when I was writing my book, I, I was just taken aback by how much we could relate these stories to our day-to-day lives and the things that we go through. You know, we have characters like you were saying, like Bodeweth, who has an entire story based around this idea of people trying to push her to become something that she is not and does not want to be and she's punished for that and I think a lot of people can relate especially women in today's society we can relate to the idea of you know being forced to be seen as something that we're not and then be punished when we inevitably turn around and say no that's not who I am and we also have characters like Rhiannon who goes through such immense grief and trauma and then she just kind of turns it all around and is this strong character throughout regardless of it and there's that echo of kind of healing from those traumas and griefs that we've gone through but I do really like what you said about Ariantrot because she is one that I am always baffled by within the pagan community because pagans and witches tend to focus on this idea that she is this moon goddess who is celestial in nature because of her name and her name is even like misunderstood I've spoken a little bit with um, people like Christopher Hughes about like the mistranslations of her name because in the actual manuscripts they're most often her name is most often referred to as Aranrot which would be translated today as Aranrot which is not large silver wheel it's actually like large humped wheel so it's almost like (laughs) even the idea of her name being this association that she's this moon lunar goddess doesn't quite match because we don't know that for sure and yet her character has so much that we can draw upon anyway if we were to look at her as a figure of empowerment and a figure of someone who would help you understand how to establish boundaries and stand strong in your own self. So I've never understood why this focus on the moon and the stars and the Milky Way and such has been so present within the neo-pagan and witchcraft community because she's just such an intense and amazing character as it is. (laughs) You know what, this comes up, this probably comes up way more than we think, is that a lot of times when we're kind of studying Uh, mythology folklore and I'm assuming witchcraft as well we're relying on sources sources of information so when those sources have been filtered through people who have got something wrong or mistranslated or something like this that gets filtered through by a bunch of people and then those people you know become an authority on a subject and then it filters through to another bunch of people and then it filters through to us so there's probably a lot of things that we assume and that we have kind of created that it's probably a more modern retelling or understanding of some characters because of just years and decades and decades and hundreds of years of this sort of stuff filtering through um different people with their own biases their own perspectives on the world um but yeah and I for me mythology and folklore I love them because they hold up this mirror to people and what we believe in and what our kind of priorities are in life. And my favourite way to when I get um, a bit creative and when I have a little a little go at creative writing and stuff like that is I use folklore to talk about very real world issues. And I think you can you can talk about really hard hitting stuff. I mean, like really powerful horrible things that happen to people or really just intense experiences that people have but when you dress it up in a little bit of folklore and fantasy it makes it easier to to digest for the person suffering from that and for other people to understand so I think you can have really fascinating conversations whether they're kind of um very uh political or whether they're very personal or what have you but you can have really 
very fascinating conversations about what it is to be a human being through mythology and through folklore in my opinion. Absolutely. And I don't know if this is more of just a, a personal thing, but for me growing up, I just liked seeing the place that I grew up, <laughs> I guess. Because I mean, the Mabinogi is interesting in that it mentions real places that you can still go to, to this day. It's like, it's not this mythical landscape that does not exist. You know, we can actually visit Harlech, which is where Bendigadron's castle was. We can go to places like Daved, which is where Puech supposedly came across uh, Araun and was guided into the other world. So it's almost like these, these in like fantastical stories that are going on, they're rooted in a, in a world that um, for me personally, I grew up in and I, like I loved being able to see that because often uh, seeing whales represented in media and such was just not a thing that we saw much growing up and so to see these epic tales and adventures happening in the landscape that you were being raised in and grown up in it was kind of like seeing that there was magic in your land and that your culture was also just as magical and inherently like powerful in the same way as like the Greeks and the Romans with their mythology and so it was it was wonderful I remember when I was younger um we we live I went into a completely Welsh primary school and um my teachers loved taking us out because we were we were a very strange school we only had about 26 students so we didn't stick by any curriculums or anything like that and they loved to like take us out into the village itself to learn about the history and the folklore of the region so we had the the historical side was that we were in Aberfraw which of course was the court of the kings of Wales for such a long time it was where like the court of Llywelyn was and um so we would learn a lot about that but on the flip side we also learned a lot about the mythology so the story that always sticks out to me is um the second branch of the Mabinogi because I, I heard that story so many times growing up and it was like I took part in projects to do with it art projects I went to watch a pantomime version of it once when I was younger and that was great because Evnishen was so camp in it and it was wonderful but um the thing that always connected Branwen to me personally was the fact that a tiny little part of the story, but there's in the bit where they're talking about the wedding between Branwen and Matholoch, they say they got married at Abifrau. <laughs> and that to me was like, oh, they got married where I was growing up. Oh my gosh. And that was so exciting for me as a child. And I remember being taken by... Um, an art teacher used to come and visit us at school. She took us out to this cliff that overlooks the sea that we used to call locally a peak. And on a peak, there's like this um, kind of rock formation that to, to anyone who doesn't know would just look like rocks growing on the cliff. But it's actually the re remnants of an Iron Age uh, burial mound. And I remember the art teacher went up to, and she was probably just being, you know, fantastical and trying to make, inspire us. But she said, oh, this is probably the remains of where Branwen had her wedding. It's probably the remains of the tents that they set up and such. And that just brought these stories to life for me. So I guess seeing all that come to life was just deeply important and uh, I guess transformative in how I viewed Welsh culture as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about the Mabinogi is that there are all of these kind of uh, clues that this, before it was written down, it would have been something performed. You would have motioned to different parts of the landscape and what have you. And it's really interesting that you had that experience because I know that some people have like the opposite experience. I know some people, like some Scottish people, hate Outlander. They just get like some sort of secondhand cringe for Outlander they really don't like it um obviously some Scottish people do like it but I've seen it by some Welsh people as well that you know they don't like seeing well Wales or kind of Welsh accents or something in media because it's just oh no I don't like it um but for me yeah I have the same relationship with um Welsh myths and legends and Cornish myths and legends you know the idea that I can go to a place that is featured in a story that I know, like the Mermaid of Senna, which is down west in Cornwall. You can go to the church and see the mermaid bench carving. You can go to the cliffs that um, this mermaid swam around in. It's so powerful. And these stories are really rooted in 
the land and landscape. I mean, how many descriptions of the land are there in the fourth branch? With just and on all of them, actually. But Branwen is probably it's one. It's my favourite as well. It's the second branch and the fourth branch that are my favourites. I have to admit, but that was always my favourite one initially because you just have all of these interesting characters. Um, and it's the one for me that is the best example of magical realism. So number four has all this magic in it, but it's very magical. But branch two of Branwen, you know, uh, he's a giant, you know, <laughs> he's a giant king. And the only thing you know about um, Bendigo Fran or Bran or whatever you call him, the only thing you know about him indicating he's a giant is saying he's never been in a house big enough for him. It never says he is a giant king. You know, it's all these little hints that, you know, all of these magical, strange, otherworldly things are dressed up as purely normal, completely normal. And the same with Branwen being able to train birds to carry a message across the sea to talk to her brother about the abuse she's kind of suffering. You know, it's all this magical, brilliant stuff that is just treated as totally normal. And I love that element of magical realism in the Mabinogi. It's just it kind of infuses these very real places and these real kind of social customs with pure enchantment. And it's just, yeah, it's very, very special. You've got me curious now because um, I just, as you were saying that, I remembered a conversation I was having a few days ago with my partner. Um, we were talking about the type of fantasy that we like because um, a lot of people, because of my interests in like witchcraft and magic, they assume I would be really, really into like high fantasy, like escapism. Um, I know some people always assume that I'm into like role playing games, like tabletop role playing games and things like that. And I'm not. And I'm also not like that into like Lord of the Rings and things like that. I, I like the idea of them, but whenever I go and watch them, I'm not really that into them. And I was talking to my partner because he's the complete opposite. He loves really high fantasy, like complete fantasy worlds. And I said to him, my personal favorite type of fantasy is fantasy that is barely fantasy. It's like, it's there, but it's just a, oh yeah, by the way. So like there's a TV series that I was obsessed with in 2012, which only got six episodes. And the premise of the TV series is it's very similar to like uh, teen shows like Skins and things like that, in that it's about these four girls who live together in a flat in, in Camden in London. And they, you know, they have to deal with, you know, trying to make money to make the rent and getting by with like their love, their relationships, their friendship together and trying to keep jobs and things. And it's such like a rooted in reality, almost soap opera type TV show. Oh, and by the way, they happen to be witches. <laughs> and that's like, <laughs> that's my favorite type of fantasy where it's like, oh yeah, they are witches, but it's not the main focus. It's not charmed where like they're throwing potions at demons all the time. <laughs> they just, every now and then they go to a solstice festival and, you know, there's one kind character who was raised a witch so like her mum comes over sometimes and she's like why don't you have your witchy things out why why weren't you at solstice last <laughs> month like come on and it's very kind of like that same idea of oh why don't you come to church anymore and I just I love that when it's fantasy but it's rooted in reality and I'm wondering now if my love for that comes from the fact that that's what a lot of the Mabinogi is like as well it's fantasy but it's still real and it's still here with us and you can imagine it happening right in front of you without having to enter into some completely other world so that's a really interesting one <laughs> I mean you know that's why it was so easy for people like Jeffrey of Monmouth to create like these whole chunks of history of Wales using the Mabinogi as kind of reference because it is magical and it is fantastical but it's also very grounded <laughs> in a way like all of this bonkers crazy stuff happens that obviously wouldn't happen in real life but all of this stuff happens that does happen in real life like relationship dynamics and um kind of social customs and the places and the way that kind of court and society and um what have you would have functioned that's all within the story so it makes sense to me how it is such an important piece is a body of work that you know a lot of academics are really fascinated in because although it's it is fantastical it is also a really great tool and insight into contemporary Welsh history and society and culture um of you know the time this might be a question that I've already asked slightly at the beginning but seeing as this podcast is kind of 
oriented mostly towards witches and pagans, people who would incorporate these things, these, you know, these mythologies and these characters and such into their spiritual or magical practice. I'm just wondering if you have any connection to witchcraft and magic, or if after being interested in uh, mythology and folklore and such, if that plays any role in your life today, because I know you were saying that a lot of your audience are witches and pagans. So I'm just wondering if you've kind of dipped your toe in that world at all or if it's something that's still quite foreign to you I mean you mentioned before um there's a lot of sources for Cornish witchcraft so there's a really really strong vein of um witchcraft in Cornwall so I see that as being a really important significant part of Cornish history in general um so I really want to look more into that and I love the witchcraft museum it's one of my favourite places. I, I absolutely love it. I think it's brilliant. Um, so it's always something I have been really interested in, but have never really dipped my toe in properly. But I relate to a lot of the things that I hear people talk about. So in terms of like interest in folklore, for me, my primary interest is, you know, in storytelling and connecting to place. So it's for a sense of, of place. Um, and it helps me kind of understand place better and it makes you more respectful in a way I think if you know a little bit about some of the folklore of, of a place for me it kind of makes you respect it you're like oh not because you're like well I'm not gonna butcher this tree just because there might be a pisky living in it no but it does kind of enchant the landscape a little bit more so I'm a very um I don't I'm not that into horoscopes and all that but I am a Taurus which um from what I know does make sense and I'm very much um I guess someone rooted in place um I'm very much connected to the land where I live um I love it I love great big chunks of granite rock I love the coast I love um, fields and the sea. So I'm very connected to a sense of place. And actually, so my main motivator, if I was going to kind of earnestly look into witchcraft and folk practices, would be to connect to a sense of place and to um, explore my relationship to a sense of place. And that's my that would be my primary kind of motivator for it. And I can, I, that will happen. I can see it happening at this point. It's, it's inevitable. Uh <laughs> yeah. I think that's a motivator for a lot because I know from like kind of my stream of uh, witchcraft and paganism, which is rooted in the Welsh side of things. It's very much all about connecting to the landscape and connecting to the culture on a deeper visceral level. I talk a lot about how before I found paganism and witchcraft, I didn't, I didn't really enjoy being Welsh, which sounds harsh and sounds awful, but growing up in a rural community as like an openly queer person, as someone who didn't really fit in with the rest of like my peers in the same age group, the minute I turned about 12, 13, it was like, I felt like an outsider and I could not wait to leave Wales. And then I came across um, the Anglesey Druid Order and you know the modern Druids, the modern witches who were working in Wales. And it reintroduced me to the myths and legends that I grew up with already with, uh, within like Mabinoki and such and the folklore. But it also helped me see the magic in the land. As you say, it re-enchanted my view of the land. And so without it, I don't think I would have embraced my Welshness as much. And I often get asked like, oh, why don't you sound Welsh? And it's like, because when I was about 13, 14, I didn't want to sound Welsh. So I really pushed it out of me. But now my paganism and witchcraft has really helped me feel not just a deeper sense of the importance of the landscape itself, but also the importance of my culture. And I think that is a prime motivator for a lot of people going into paganism is connecting to their heritage, connecting to their land, connecting to the place that they walk in every single day. But I know that sometimes pagans and witches can have a completely different idea of, say, the myths and legends of these mm -hmm. uh, nations than, say, academics do. I speak a lot about this with certain witches who dip the toe in both worlds, people who are both Celtic scholars and witches and pagans. 
And they say it is a kind of strange one because on one hand, uh, the witches and pagans sometimes seem to disregard academic sources and prefer to go with what, say, Robert Graves said years and years <laughs> ago. Whereas on the other hand, on the flip side, sometimes it's very hard to get the academics to view the kind of spiritual significance of these things as well, because they just see them as stories. They're just stories. And it's kind of like, I, I know I've, I've got one friend in particular who is both, you know, she's studying her master's degree in Celtic studies and she's a witch. And she says she struggles because sometimes she brings up the idea of, you know, could some of these characters in the Mabinogi be gods beforehand? And some of her professors are like, oh, no, don't go down that route. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh gosh, it's like almost like a block on both sides. So I'm just wondering, as somebody who studied Celtic studies at an academic level, how do you perceive the way that you know, modern pagans and witches today interact with the myths and legends that you studied? How do you feel about the way that they um, live them, I suppose? It's a really interesting one because um, for me, my as I mentioned earlier, my motivations for doing this Masters were very kind of emotional. They were very, very emotional, very personal. Um, and I went into it with all sorts of biases about what Celtic is, what does Celtic mean, um, what have you. And, you know, through studying it academically, it does make you challenge and question a lot. But as you kind of allude to, I suppose that does set you up in the trap of being a bit too cynical and being a bit too um, wary of things. So for me, um, I can see the kind of uh, academic significance of some work in terms of it highlighting bits about Welsh and Welsh culture and what have you. And we also looked at um, medieval Irish literature, so it's the same for Ireland. Um, But we also studied things like female Welsh saints, um, and that was really fascinating and brilliant. Um, So, it's a really great degree for studying a lot of different things. So, you know, you study history, you study mythology, you study folklore, but it does mean that sometimes you've got to check yourself for not being this sneery kind of academic looking down on, on people who are just kind of making their way through the sources the best they can and just having their own personal emotional relationships to the texts and to how they navigate the world. So, I am kind of critical and wary of some things I see pertaining to the concept of Celtic and pertaining to Celtic studies. And I will highlight some issues that I have that some people kind of um, propagate. But I do also have a kind of um, emotional um, view of the stories. And I do think that I've got some of the same motivations that I love the stories and the myths and legends that a lot of witches and folk practitioners also have. So I can see where kind of both sides are coming from, really. I get a little bit fed up with some things, like as you mentioned earlier, Ariane Hrod being, you know, held up as like a moon goddess. I sort of think, where did that come from? Um, but I also don't think there's any point having a blanket generalization on on anything so I wouldn't go ahead and say all of the characters are gods and goddesses but I also wouldn't kind of shut down that conversation I wouldn't say those characters and those kind of characters couldn't be gods and goddesses once or based on some kind of god or goddess of the past and so I'm not really in favor of turning them all into gods and goddesses but that's a very personal thing of mine but also at the same time I think however you navigate the world is a very personal thing to you and if you emotionally connect to one of the characters in the Mabinogi and kind of hold them up as this god or goddess or whatever uh, other name you want to call it as a person that you kind of live your life by you've they help you view the world and help you kind of navigate the world around you I don't you know, I don't see how that's a problem. People do that with their favourite superhero characters. I don't see why there's anything wrong with holding up a character from um, a medieval text and kind of helping that, you know, using that character to navigate the world around you. And, you know, there is academic 
sources to say some of them you know, they could have been gods and goddesses so it's all a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to um witches and <laughs> academia uh, and paganism and what have you and I think sometimes I'm sort of towing the line between a lot of different areas but there we go I think it's it's important to acknowledge and I might get absolutely hated for saying this but sometimes gatekeeping can be good because sometimes there are ideas that are pushed in these kind of um communities that exist online that are just not just wrong but also harmful as well I mean one of the biggest um harmful pieces of information that I see pushed online is this idea of you know like Celtic blood and this whole it almost it it treads into this whole white supremacist way of thinking and I get very tired of that especially because I'm part of a lot of pagan groups online so yeah sometimes it's good to stand up and say actually no you're you're full of shit there (laughs) and I don't think a lot of people understand sometimes that's what they're doing is that they're continuing this kind of blood and soil conversation that's been happening in white supremacist circles for decades for a long time so I'm very very wary of that so we both mentioned that we have a very strong sense of place but it's got nothing to do with like DNA or genetics it's simply because it is the place where I live and where I grew up in so it means a lot to me so I do struggle I do struggle and I have struggled uh, a lot with people who obviously want to connect to to their heritage and that's fine having some sort of feeling of ownership of a land that they've never they've never been on and that's not their fault that a lot of the time they've never kind of been they've never visited the place where their ancestors or what have you are from but I'm very wary of people connecting having too much significance of a sense of space and a sense of place if they've never been there um, and uh, having a sense of ownership to it like it's my ancestral homeland that kind of thing I understand people having an interest in it and being fascinated by a place and thinking oh wow I can imagine my great 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 grandmother like walking those along those hills and looking at that stretch of coast and I can understand that that's a real emotional response and I can understand that some people are looking for a sense of place. They're looking for a sense of identity, especially, you know, if you're you're from somewhere like America or Australia where the land you live on is kind of uh, basically stolen, um, I can understand you'd have a really, really complicated sense. You have a really complicated identity when it comes to sense of space because, you know, you feel too bad for connecting to the land where you're from because it's not your kind of ancestral land so I struggle with that a lot and I feel like sometimes I'm too judgmental of people and I have to check myself and it's not very kind and I could kind of approach people with more empathy when they are struggling with that kind of sense of identity but I'm also very wary and very quick to shut down any conversations um, and discussions that are kind of basically white supremacist um even if people don't quite realize that's what they're doing we can have all these biases about realizing we can be racist without us thinking that we're racist you know what i mean people can propagate quite harmful um talking points and quite harmful narratives without even quite realizing that's what they're doing and they can fall prey to you know propagating these things like i said blood and soil that kind of thing that's very this concept that's very much propagated by racists and white supremacists so um yes I can be very wary and I struggle with that kind of side of things um a lot and I know that's where a lot of witches and pagans are are coming from is they want a sense of space and they want to have roots and a sense of identity that helps them um so kind of practicing folk practices and what have you helps them connect to that and I can totally understand that but I will kind of shut down (laughs) anything that gets um uh, too fascist yes and I I love that um I'm just 
I'm so thankful for the voice that you put out there as well, especially when you talk about, you know, what culture is and such as well, because I think people can get really tied up in this idea that culture is to do with blood and genetics when it's not. Culture is lived. And if you don't live it, then you're not part of that culture. And that can be like a bit of a slap in the face for some people, because as you say, if they are on stolen land and they feel like they don't have a right to engage with the landscape that they're on in the same manner, to then be told, actually, you also don't have as much of a right to engage with the landscape of your ancestors can also be like, what? It's like, we're not saying you don't have a right to engage with that. But, you know, it can also be problematic for you as somebody who has never lived in this place, has never engaged with the culture and didn't even know that you were a part of this culture, like genetically speaking, until you did a 23andMe test or whatever. <laughs> then yeah. sometimes it can be a bit, I, I don't know, it's, I don't know if this is judgmental of me to say, but sometimes times when I come across people who for generations and generations have lived say in America or Australia and they're like I'm Welsh and it's just like are you and at the same time I have people coming into my comments saying you're not Welsh because you don't sound Welsh it's like oh my goodness yeah. I had recently this is me just airing my problems now but I had <laughs> recently um there was a guy from the Ozark region in America who decided that I must be faking being Welsh because I call myself Welsh and that is that means that you're not really Welsh because Welsh is a slur apparently and I understand where he got this idea because it is a conversation that's happening at the minute that the word Welsh you know came from this word that means foreigner and such but it's obviously a misunderstanding on his part and he was also mixing up this idea of what being Welsh and what being Cornish was and at the same time while saying that I'm a fake Welsh person because I refer to myself as Welsh he was there standing going I'm Cornish with his American accent and in moments like that I do get frustrated and I'm like oh my goodness please just look at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> yeah I, I get really frustrated with that as well because you know they're it's people will be picking up on hints of conversations that are being had within Welsh communities. Um, people in Wales, people that are Welsh, you know, in Welsh communities and sort of picking apart bits and bobs. And you see it the same with, with Irish stuff and Cornish stuff and what have you. It's, uh, it's really difficult to have a full, you, you can't fully engage in some conversations that are happening within a community if you're kind of from outside of that community which is really difficult to say and I must also point out that um in some ways you know Amer Americans for example can't quite engage with some kind of um cultural practices or what have you but also a lot of things a lot of like language and a lot of cultural practices have been really preserved by very keen Americans <laughs> Americans that are really invested an earnest in their search to, uh, and their kind of um, desire to connect to their history. So um, a lot of language, um, a lot of cultural kind of um, folk practices, I think, have been really helped to be preserved um, because of lovely um enthusiastic Americans. So I don't want to do a blanket, um, a blanket sort of um criticism of Americans but there is that need to prove um authenticity and at the end of the day it's all a bit arbitrary and it's all a bit silly so you know I get it a lot with people saying that I'm not Cornish I'm just English but for me I grew up in Cornwall and my uh, most of my family are Welsh so English doesn't mean anything to me it's not something I connect to at all I don't have any family in England um other than my sister they just moved across the Tamar uh <laughs> that's not very far but it, it doesn't mean anything to me so when people turn around and they go well you're not really Cornish or you're not really Welsh um you're just English it's it is really difficult um so I think a, I think a small sense of gatekeeping can it's almost like you have guardians of something, like guardians of of, of history and heritage and cultural practices, and you're just trying to like um, <laughs> guard and look after it for other people. But I think obviously you can take that too far as well. Um, and when people try and gatekeep uh, you and tell you that you're <laughs> you're not Welsh enough because you don't sound like their idea of what a Welsh person sounds like or what have you, it's just it's so silly and 
like really quite offensive and hurtful I can imagine yeah deeply and I, I'm going to quote um so my friend Christopher he often says um when when conversations surrounding say cultural appropriation or is Welsh practices are they a closed practice comes up he often says that you know we don't own these practices we don't own this culture as people who live on this land but we are the caretakers of it because we're here and we're preserving it and sometimes and this is that's his quote my interpretation of that is and sometimes caretakers have to stand up and go uh, actually you don't belong here so can you just move along and that's not negative I don't think to sometimes stand up and say what you're doing is harmful what you're doing is hurting this culture more than it is preserving it but it's important yeah. to acknowledge as well that, you know, we don't own it either. And there are so many strides that have been done by people outside of the culture to preserve the culture as well. And it's beautiful that more and more people are becoming aware now of the importance of uh, keeping these cultural traditions and beliefs alive. And I'm so grateful that there's so much more voices out there now talking about this kind of stuff. And that leads me to ask you the next question, which is that, I wanted to ask how important you feel it is to preserve these myths and share them to newer generations, to new people. You share your version of them and your insight into them in, to your audience online. And that means that more people are becoming aware of them now. So how important do you think it is to do that, to really push it and bring it into people's awareness? I think it's so important. You know, I mean, let's be frank, it's not everyone's cup of tea myths and legends and witchcraft and paganism it's not everyone's cup of tea not everyone's going to be interested in it some people will just be apathetic and some people will be like against <laughs> knowing anything like that I know that I sometimes feel like I hit a bit of a um brick wall with some people who are really into like um history and are very you know whatever and folklore and storytelling is a little bit of a silly version of that but for me, I think it's really, really important because it's an accessible kind of gateway into learning about history and learning about um, the kind of uh, the kind of culture of these of these different regions. So I think I love storytelling because and folklore, because for me, rather than um, pulling people apart, I see it as bringing people together so you can see the same types of archetypal stories and characters across the world and I think that is a, a beautiful lovely thing because it kind of shows that human beings are more similar than different and there are these things that bind us all together you know love betrayal fear all these kind of uh, themes and emotions and what have you that all human beings face so I think storytelling is a really important underrated historical tool to study people um, to begin with and as I said before I think it holds up a mirror so it helps you understand the people of a time and place much better so if you're looking at a particular folklore say from like the 18th century um, it's going to have details in it that will give you a better insight into the people of that time and that place and how they live their lives. So I think it's really important historically and in an academic sense like that. Um, but I do also think that folklore mythology and this kind of stuff is really important for a lot of people, not all people, like I said, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's really important to some people um, emotionally as well to really feel like the world around you is a bit enchanted you know it's th this world is too fast we cannot understand everything about it I don't like the blanket arrogance of some people um and some atheists actually they're just like no that doesn't exist that doesn't exist how, how do you know really at the end of the day I think it's a little bit of arrogance from some people to assume that we know everything we know all the parameters of the universe and the world we know everything that there, there is to know we don't we're learning all of the time so I think that understanding the world and your sense of your sense of place and history and your family's kind of history through storytelling can also be a really powerful kind of emotional um, experience for people as well. Do I believe in crazy people sharing stories about trapping fairies in cans? No, that is a, an example of me gatekeeping. <laughs> Please don't put fairies in cans. But for me, you know telling you know 
you know, I, I do a lot of talks on Cornish piskies, and for some people, that might be really silly and really quaint and what have you. But to me, it's a really great way of understanding the people of the past. Why were we so obsessed with piskies? And I think there's always got to be a tiny, tiny, tiny grain of truth to these stories, whether that grain of truth is literally a tiny grain of sand or whether it's a great big granite rock. I'm so thankful again that you decided to come and speak to us because your voice is always so thoughtful and considerate to this area of study and belief and practice and it's just it's so needed and I'm so grateful that you blessed us with your presence here today so before we get uh, before we wrap it up and finish I just wanted to ask if you could tell us a little bit about your podcast as well as where listeners to this podcast might be able to find more of you if they want to know more about you thank you um so my podcast is um very imaginatively titled Celtic Myths and Legends. Guess what it's about? <laughs> Celtic Myths and Legends. Um, so each episode I focus on one of the six Celtic nations. Now, these aren't the only places that have kind of Celtic culture or Celtic history. You also have Cumbria in England. You've got um, Galicia and Asturias in Spain. So these aren't the only places that have Celtic cultural history. And they're just places that have an existing Celtic language but um, I started it in 2017 when I didn't quite understand you know the complexities and what have you of what Celtic means to a lot of people so I started it really at the beginning of my kind of knowledge of what is Celtic and I've always tried to be very um, uh, kind and empathetic and what have you but I focus on one of the six Celtic nations every episode. So that's Cornwall, that's Wales, Ireland, Scotland, Isle of Man and Brittany. And I talk about a kind of mix of um, literature, folklore, mythology, history. Um, so it's not just folklore. I also do talk about, you know, medieval literature. I talk, I've done a couple of episodes on the Mabinogi. I've done one on medieval Irish literature. But then I do things on crazy creatures found in these regions so like the um, Bugal Nos and Breton folklore is this really sad ugly creature that wails through the forest because he's so upset at how ugly he is and he doesn't want anyone else to, to see him because he doesn't want to scare anyone so it's quite diverse in the talk in the sort of things that I talk about but it's always focused on one of the Celtic nations but then I try to bring um, them in to connect them up to stories in other parts of the world and other Celtic nations as well and sometimes I look at the pop culture um, of certain pieces of folklore so the banshee in Irish folklore is now a creature that pops up in uh, pop culture today you ask people do they know what a banshee is most people do um, whether or not they know the intricacies of 18th century folklore pertaining to banshees might be another case but they know uh, the, the gist of, of what a banshee is so yeah it's really my way of promoting and preserving the stories and myths of these regions and sharing them with as many people as possible like we talk about a little bit of gatekeeping is okay but really at the end of the day you want everyone across the world everyone and anyone to be interested in the stories of these places because they're stories that can connect us together and they're stories that include things that we can all relate to um or be intrigued by or horrified by so for me it is just about being very kind of accessible and open to all people and really I try and approach it as something that I'm sharing because I love it and I want everyone else to love it and you can find it basically anywhere anywhere that hosts podcasts I've probably badgered them to upload it so uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Deezer, Podbean I've even uploaded a few episodes on YouTube not all of them though but a few um, so you can find me uh, on any of those places under Celtic Myths and Legends podcast um, and you can also find um, me on Twitter at Celtic Myths Pod or Sean Esther um, which is S-I-A-N-E-S-T-H-E-R and then of course uh, TikTok at Sean at Celtic underscore Sean which is the same for Instagram as well so if you want to hear me rant about folklore and corner Cornwall and Cornish history and Welsh stuff then feel free. <laughs> Thank you.
What an amazing chat. Thank you once again to Celtic Shan, to Shan Esther Powell for coming along and chatting with us. I really hope I can get Shan back on the podcast very soon to chat with us about more magical things. Now, thank you for listening and thank you, if you are a regular listener, for being patient with me. I've been on a bit of a hiatus recently for a variety of reasons and hopefully I'm crossing every appendage that I currently own. I'm hoping that this means we're back to regularly scheduled podcasts once again. Now remember, if you want to support the show, if you want to support me and the Welsh Witch Podcast and everything that I do, you can join my Patreon for as little as £1 a month. That'll give you early access to these podcast episodes. I'm planning on making exclusive podcast episodes just for patrons. My patrons also get access to exclusive videos, blogs, and other content, and they get access to a Discord group and a Facebook group. So if that's something that you you think you'd like, check out my Patreon, Mara Starling, as always, on everything. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time on the Welsh Witch Podcast. Bendition Swinol. Magical blessings. Mm-hmm.